This is the Data Science Conversations podcast with Damien Dehan and Dr. Philip Diesinger. We feature cutting-edge data science and AI research from the world's leading academic minds and industry practitioners, so you can expand your knowledge and grow your career. This podcast is sponsored by Data Science Talent, the data science recruitment experts. Welcome to the Data Science Conversations podcast. My name is Damien Dehan, and as usual, I'm here with my co-host, Philip Diesinger. How's it going, Philip? Great. Thanks, Damien. Great. So often on the show, we focus on a quite narrow uh, data science topic, but today we're taking the big picture view on how organizations can be more successful in their data science and analytics strategy. And in the current era where many of us are tasked with doing more with less, it's a timely conversation to be having. Our expert guest on this crucial subject is Patrick McQuillan, who's joining us from Boston. And by quick way of intro, Patrick is an analytics executive, professor, and strategy consultant with immense experience in using data as a tool for change and critical decision-making. He received his MBA from Oxford University and holds a combined Bachelor of Economics and International Affairs from Northeastern University. He's held several senior leadership roles across various industries, most recently as the Global Head of Data Governance and Operational Effectiveness at Wayfair. And prior to this, Patrick led international consulting teams on driving data strategy and technology enablement for the Fortune 100. He also has worked with government agencies and higher education clients as part of that work. And he's even found the time to have served several posts as an officer for the United Nations, which I'm looking forward to delving into in the the next few minutes. So, Patrick, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you here. Very happy to be here, Damien. We'll start as as usual with your, your background, your story. How did you make it into the world of data from academia? You know, it's a very interesting question. And to be brief with that, it's funny, you know, I was, I only recently, I think, have bachelor's and master's degree programs been constructed specifically around analytics and data. And before that, it was very heuristic. It was mainly teaching yourself, learning on the job. And most of my fellow data scientists really took no more than one or two stats courses in university. And most of their time was actually taught on the job. So similar happened to me. I graduated with um, studies in international law and economics. And when I did work with the United Nations, I focused mainly on economic policy and eventually wanted to learn more of the quantitative aspects of that space. And over a few short years, took on some contracts and eventually joined a few uh, formal consultancies full time and specialized in a lot of their big data analytics and combining business strategy with a lot of the um, sort of rigorous AI and even just more simple analytics models like cleaning and merging data sets and thinking about that workflow and kind of building end-to-end solutions to help drive businesses forward. And it's sort of connected the two dots where you understand the system through the economic mindset, but now you can actually deliver a engineered solution as well, using data to drive decision-making for those systems, whether it be a business or a government or elsewhere. And over time that snowballed, you learn more and more languages and you can broaden your influence and pretty much just went from there. Okay, awesome. And I have to ask about the United Nations. Tell us how did that happen and what was that about? <laughs> that was uh, that was my first foray um, before I entered the world of data science. I had a very large interest in international security and uh, particularly the laws of war. 
And so um, I'd gotten a brief fellowship um, working with the United Nations in partnership with the Graduate Institute of Geneva. And so I worked supporting some research for an arms trade treaty that was going through in Geneva um, through the United Nations in partnership with researchers at the Institute. And eventually that led to a post in the New York HQ and then eventually uh, another post where I was leading a team in New York HQ and just kind of came from there and I loved it, but uh, love data more. So I made the switch. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you have a concept, which I think is really interesting. You call it the biological model. So perhaps we start there with an explanation of what that is in the context of uh, data strategy and organizations. Absolutely. What it essentially is, is the idea that all data and decision-making power and resources should be consolidated into a single epicenter that's connected throughout an entire business or organization. And so it becomes a self-feeding system where it's able to quickly react. It's able to get ahead and predict any sort of um, you know, anticipated challenges or bottleneck based on what it's historically encountered. And most importantly, it continues to learn and provide basically uh, an adjacency between access to data and the immediate access of that data by key decision makers in the organization rather than disseminating it with individual managers on different teams and having decentralized analytics hubs or centers of excellence that might exist across different verticals that don't communicate to each other. Patrick, maybe you can explain a little bit what's the difference between the biological model that you mentioned as a as a nervous system or a neural network, basically, compared to normal centralized data governance or, or, or data strategies or structures that you already find in like small or medium-sized companies, yeah, where you don't have the capacity to decentralize everything. And because of that, most of it is centralized already. Yes. So that's an excellent question. It's definitely begs distinction. So you're correct. The biological model is particularly named that way, just to highlight that point, because it simulates the central nervous system with the brain as the epicenter and the key decision-making component. And then the nerves that are essentially connected to different parts of the body and collect information on what's felt in the fingertips, what's felt in internal organs, what's automated processes like blinking and breathing, similar to AI, versus non-automated conscious processes like reaching out and actually grabbing things and influencing the world all comes from the brain and the decision that's being collected there. And so what's very important in this model is more than anything, we need to focus on a very sound and healthy data foundation. And so what happens is basically two things you'll typically encounter in industry where there's a little bit of a you know issue that needs to be resolved in that space. The first, to your point, uh, which is the obvious one, is companies that just have decentralized data centers and can't really communicate to each other. And it's difficult to get the full picture quickly at the decision-making level. But to your point about small and medium-sized businesses, where a lot of the time that is centralized, the issue there is that the data is for sure centralized, but is the nervous system actually healthy? So are they collecting the right data? Is there enough volume to actually make decisions? Are they in a bit of a tight competitive pinch where they're trying to get ahead of some competitors and maybe get ahead of themselves before they have enough information to make a safe call? And if they don't have that information, but they need to make a decision, Is it all they're relying on or are they reaching out to other non-data sources to help fill those gaps? And I feel like that's pretty much what happens where you can still have the system working, but it's not necessarily flowing in the way it needs to. It's not fluid. There may not be as many neurons or not enough information collected. And in the sense of practical application, this could mean not enough data sources. It could mean not enough testing 
or you know, if, if you're trying to go to market, maybe roll out and scale up a new marketing plan without testing in the right markets first or doing it without finding statistical significance and actually the results you're finding before branching out and scaling that strategy, similar to supply chain optimization and pretty much end-to-end anything happening on the ops side as well, where these companies just may be getting ahead of themselves with a less than preferred um, level of maturity for their data infrastructure, where it is going to the brain and it is being collected, but it's incomplete. And they may have too much information on the arm, but not enough on the leg. And it ends up creating a system that overcompensates in some areas and undercompensates in others, which becomes a very difficult habit to break as you scale. So the difference between the healthy biological model and an already somewhat centralized data system would be the translation of decentralization of data and then translation into meaningful, actionable insights and business actions. How about large organizations which are mostly decentralized, I would say, if they're not like tech companies or data companies, uh, you will find them really decentralized because that's typically how the company has evolved or grown organically, how capabilities have grown organically, so their own their own data. What would be the advantages of centralizing the data model for large organizations? Yes, so that's actually exactly the reason why the biological model came about, is because typically these organizations, to your point, because they need to scale quickly and need is there, they'll end up creating different centers of excellence, which ends up becoming no center of excellence at the end of the day, where supply chain will have its own vertical, merchandising marketing will have its own vertical, and you know customer service will have their own vertical. You have all these different verticals across an org, uh, software development, tech, anything like that. And what you end up seeing is, to your point, you have these different decentralized data centers. And so while that does operate to a certain degree of functionality within those verticals, with all of my experience on the industry side and consulting the industry side from the outside, I've yet to see a system like that work in the long run. I think that you'll have individual leaders of those verticals definitely testify to that, but the people who report laterally to those leaders or the people who they report up to will always mention that there's going to be a knowledge gap because each leader is focused only on their lane without really understanding the context as much as it needs to be understood with how other silos may end up being impacted. And so this is particularly important at the leadership level. And when I say leadership for large companies, I mean C-suite and board level, where they'll be asking for performance. They'll have to report this to shareholders. They'll have to make key decisions on a quarterly basis or even a monthly basis if something very, very critical is happening across the org. And it is extraordinarily frustrating for these leaders to basically say, great, we need to do something. How are we doing? And it takes them three weeks or a month and costs a lot of money to get all the FTEs on the ground to pull those reports, which are usually substandard to what they could be if it was centralized. And the reports are usually contextualized only within the avenue of that particular vertical. And so the benefit of having a fully centralized system is, again, we have instead of eight little brains with you know, one reaching out to the finger, one reaching out to the leg and collecting that solo information and then having a delayed communication to each other, basically, to make a decision to tell the body to walk. Instead, what we're doing is we're saying, collect all these neurons, all these touch points, all these decision-making components and all the key decision-makers there. So we have the brain, which again, collects our data, but is also where our consciousness is and where we make these decisions. To have both the data and the decision-makers all in one place, put it at the head of the organization and loop 
all of those existing lines of data collection and communication into that central base. So you can still have the silos, not saying deconstruct those, but you need a leader in place, whether it be a CTO, a CIO, or some sort of VP of just efficacy or you know business intelligence or something like that to take each of those verticals and create a horizontal translation layer where their input can be leveled out presented easily and readily to senior leadership. And that person can also be a partner to senior leadership and the other vertical heads to basically make those decisions and have a hand in each cookie jar, so to speak. And it's a, it's a very simple glue. And at the end of the day, it costs only as much as maybe one additional leader and a small team of two or three to just help navigate that environment a little bit, create some glue, grease the gears, develop a diplomatic relationship with each of these verticals. And then set up what is usually at that level, a pretty simple framework of data collection and reporting that can just keep folks accountable, increase transparency, and ultimately make the organization remarkably more effective with very little lift or cultural change. So you mentioned uh, basically that this impulse needs to be coming from the C-level. In your opinion, what's a good way to convince leaders in verticals to kind of share or give up a little bit the ownership or the insights that come from the data. Absolutely. So I think that that is for sure a pain point that some teams encounter, particularly with your point, large organizations. And with that, I think most of the reason to your point is to most of their pressure is that they don't want to relinquish control, not for any sort of selfish reason, but because if they don't have full control over something, then it may make them a little nervous about performance of that vertical. And so usually the way that these partnerships are constructed and the way I've seen them work in the past is that there is no actual relinquishing of control. It's more of a partnership with these different vertical heads or with that key translator or team of translators at the leadership level who basically say, look, we're going to, your name is going to be on this report one way or the other. And it's costing you guys $40,000 a month to chase down and pull these metrics together. And that's going to be almost $500,000 a year per vertical going into pulling these reports. Why don't we save ourselves a few million dollars, get a small team of three or four folks to stand this up, and you present it as a partnership where we say you're going to have more time to innovate, more time to chase down projects, you're going to have fewer bottlenecks in your work stream if you allow us to help assist with that reporting. And again, your name is going to be on this. So we'll be able to share this up to C-Suite. And instead of having C-Suite ask questions like, what is this and what's happening, which are typically unpleasant surprises, instead it's going to be something wonderful is happening and our name is on it and this looks great, or something suboptimal is happening, but we've already gotten ahead of it and we can already speak in greater detail, maybe even issue a report before this large meeting or before these big reports go out to the C-Suite to get ahead of it. It increases efficiency. It creates more confidence and whether something's going well or not as well from a reporting standpoint for a certain vertical, they always come out looking better because if that thing was going to happen one way or the other, this partnership typically allows a little bit more um, prescience and being able to anticipate it. There's an external partner who understands that they're working with on the reporting side, who understands maybe how it will affect different verticals in the org. Maybe if it's a supply chain issue and software engineering needs to be roped in, that They need to reach across the board, someone who can help manage that relationship, manage both of their work streams so that supply chain doesn't have to worry about software's work work stream and vice versa. So there's a third party to help the two of them collaborate and navigate those waters a bit. 
and eventually roll up what would ultimately be the same solution that they would normally roll up, but better. It would be reported more quickly and agilely. They'd be saving more money instead of chasing down reports and trying to get people on the ground, hopping off of projects to issue certain ad hoc or recurring reports for senior leadership. And it ultimately creates a little bit more of a broader impact across the organization that can be sustained and over time scaled, I think, quite easily. So giving up control over data oftentimes means giving up a little bit control over information or power even. I've seen that leaders don't like that particularly well. Yeah? And I'm not saying necessarily that it's a bad thing. Yeah? Power can also mean having less stakeholders in making critical decisions for your division or department, uh, keeping things moving. Yeah? So that can also be a positive thing. How how would you see are there in the biological model are there ways of of sharing power or keeping decision making fluid and flexible at the same time while centralizing? How would you see that? And even just to call in a deeper point, um, there is no sacrificing of power or metrics whatsoever. So all it is is purely a partnership. And so to give a perfect example, an org that I had worked with in the past, uh, they had. Um, I'd say about eight key verticals in their org. It was a 5,200-person org, took up about a quarter of the company, and they had eight primary verticals. And the issue, and the reason I had joined that org, was because exactly what I had mentioned, just decentralized reporting, no transparency, hard to get accountability, inconsistent and inaccurate reporting. And so these verticals were doing their jobs, but they weren't doing their jobs within context of each other. They weren't melding as well as they could have. So... When I first joined and built up my team, the concern was that we would be taking the data away from them, to your point, that we would be sacrificing power or influence. But that's not the case. What we actually did was we equipped them and gave them a framework to actually make their work look better. So they would be reporting the same metrics. Uh, we would not be taking over the calculation of those metrics. We would not be chasing down those metrics on the day-to-day -day because there might be 1,300 KPIs in an org. And so one team just cannot know the narrative for each of those KPIs every single day. And so typically instead what happens is we align on KPIs and you'd be surprised how many times in an org something as simple as ROI or cost pers or things like that are actually calculated differently across different verticals but reported as the same thing upward. And so what we did was we cleaned up the way they reported and we all sat in meeting and basically said what is going to be our ultimate indicator here? What is the definition we're going to agree on? And we created an alignment. From there, we created data dictionaries that track down the individual owners on each team of each KPI. So who can speak to this if there's going to be an issue, um, if there's a breakage or an interesting trend happening, who can we bring into a meeting with the higher ups or in, in local teams that might be working cross-functionally to speak to that. And so what we did was we actually didn't take over reporting. We just basically imposed a governance structure to help secure their data and make their performance reporting more confident, more consistent, and to keep across verticals more effective. And so the way that these leaders ultimately presented their findings is that my team would steer those meetings and we would have the KPIs categorized by division, we would report a simple trend, we would incorporate the insights that their team wanted us to incorporate. But we would hold standing business reviews, so weekly, monthly, quarterly, depending on the audience, um, usually weekly for each vertical, monthly for C-suite, and then quarterly occasionally with the board or CEO particularly. And each of these VPs or SVPs would be sitting on that call, and we would actually let them speak to the narrative and let them share the story. 
but they actually became a more effective decision maker because now they have another team, my team, that would be helping contextualize those metrics with their team so they don't have to constantly chase things down. We tell the story that they want to tell and we put it in the context of other folks' stories so it becomes a full view of the business. And um, most importantly, no data is being sacrificed. It's still being owned by those teams, just might be getting filtered into a master document that our team's managing, but we're not changing the values in any way. And the only values that would be changed is basically just readjusting some KPIs to make sure that every team is calculating them and reporting them and speaking on them in the same way with the same understanding, which ultimately makes everyone look good and gives C-suite and board a lot more confidence to report out to shareholders and just make internal decisions as well. Makes a lot of sense, yeah. You mentioned before that basically analytics or inside layer on top of existing verticals could already establish this centralized model to a large extent. How would that look on a technical side? So you can, of course, go all the way and try to centralize physically data in one big data center somewhere, or maybe two or three to respect regulations. You could also keep the data physically actually decentralized, right? And just establish this virtual layer on top to kind of make sure there is kind of a funnel into insights and informed decision-making. Like in the biological model, how would that look ideally on the IT and technical side? So to use the context of that model, data would be getting collected from different points as you brought up. So, you know, we don't want to separate the hand from the rest of the body or mix it with another hand. So we definitely want to keep their collecting, their collection epicenters, the data lakes that each vertical is managing as undisrupted as possible. So typically my philosophy has always been not to get involved too deeply in having each individual team sort of manage their backend data engineering, because usually that's inherited from years and years of certain builds and they have certain rules in place. And it's, it's a lot for one small team to manage and would probably not carry the value to fully transform that. So what we do is usually either create one or two to your point centralized lakes on top of those lakes. So you almost have this foundational layer where each vertical has their data sources already being compiled into whether it be the cloud or a combination of cloud and maybe some manual spreadsheets, depending on how they report. But then we have above that foundational layer, we have a curated layer where nothing is really being recalculated. It's just we're filtering away the metrics that we're not concerned about at an executive level. So that might already chop down 80, 85% if we're talking 1300 metrics or 2000 metrics. Maybe we want to just whittle it down to the ones that only C-suite or vice presidents, just basically senior leadership or above care about. And then the individual teams can focus more on the smaller metrics that they, that more matter in their day to day. And it basically will filter those out. And then it's just an extra layer of collection. And that's, again, just trying to get it into the base of the brain and trying to say, okay, we cannot overprocess a lot of information. So let's just focus on what needs to be understood. Let's focus on breathing, let's focus on blinking, let's focus on you know vital organ health, things like that in a biological sense. So what are the metrics that help us measure that? And what are the metrics that ultimately you're going to drive the health of the body at a high level, at the key decision-making level, not the health of a joint in the finger for that vertical, but being able to breathe, absorb oxygen into the lungs, healthy functioning at an overall just universal scale. And once those metrics have been identified, Uh, usually those would be primary metrics and then what I call secondary or contextual metrics. 
So maybe you have arbitrarily, say, 10 to 30 metrics that will tell the performance of the entire business. You might also add an additional 50 or so to contextualize some of those. Maybe if you have a you know, cost per customer service engagement when someone calls customer service center or contacts one, but then you want to break that out into contextual metrics like cost by, per call or cost per email, cost per chat, you know, things like that, just to give a little bit more context. So we roll up those primary and secondary or contextual KPIs into a curated layer, which essentially sits at the base of the brain. And that curated layer exists ideally on the cloud, but usually will be a combination of cloud querying the individual cloud lakes that they have in their own verticals and pulling manually or through email load up just on a synchronized frequency from those partner teams, any additional CSVs or just, you know, department-wide reporting documents that are useful to source additional metrics that might not be loaded up into the cloud. So what you end up getting is a comparably simple foundation of just clean data that's querying already clean data, but rolling it up into a safe place that can be managed at an executive level without disruption, and some additional CSV pulls just for other data that might not necessarily be coming in. And then those get rolled up into overall reports and sort of infrastructure discussions. So the technical side is a Comparably not too complicated compared to, you know, individual verticals managing that. Yeah. In a curated layer, as you describe it, how would you establish having one source of truth in data that comes from different verticals? Right? So there, a classical example is client or CRM data that lives in different parts of the organizations and oftentimes is conflicted. Yeah, that is a, uh, I think the highest value, one of the highest value aspects that this type of function delivers is that single source of truth. And that comes into a strong data governance infrastructure, basically saying, I, I think that there's a, there's a cultural focus for non-data engineers. You know, most, most folks who are not doing that particular role um, in an org are focused on the model or the outcome or the narrative, of course, which is driving those decisions that they're going to be making. But I think more attention needs to be paid to creating, and this is across all orgs uh, at all levels, a very sound and strong foundation of data. And so what that means is imposing universal standards that are usually quite simple to put into place. They don't require a lot of coding or engineering or really much changing at the you know, foundational layer level. But definitely standards need to be put into place to ensure that reporting at all levels is being consistent. And so the way to do that, I know I mentioned briefly, and I'll go more into it, the best solution I found is creating a data dictionary and an end-to-end -end, um, management process for any sort of changes that happen in the way a KPI is calculated or data is being sourced to make sure that backend all the way to the front end can manage and adapt to those changes. So the data dictionary side, to give an example, This is basically saying, you know, over time, we can focus on, let's say, cleaning up these, just arbitrary, let's say these 2000 KPIs, but for the main ones that we're trying to report at an executive level, so let's say these 100, the ones that are the most important for different levels of reports, and mainly at the senior C-suite level, for those, the most important thing, and it takes a couple of months, is to have those conversations with leaders and say, all right, we have eight verticals. All eight of these verticals rely on different variants of ROI, but it all gets rolled up into a large ROI number, let's say. So let's all sit together and let's walk through the calculations and let's bring the folks who actually make those calculations into the conversation. And it can be just a simple standing meeting twice a month for two months. And it's just very simple, half an hour of everyone's time. 
And all it does is say, okay, how are we calculating this? Let's all calculate it the same way. And it's obviously easier said than done. So sometimes you might have to break it up into two KPIs or three KPIs, but it's better than having seven or eight different versions and you can rename them and contextualize them. So it's getting that alignment on the main ones that you're trying to report upward on. And it's just basically comes to that partnership agreement with trying to horizontalize the conversation where you kind of get that buy-in from leadership and say, this is going to help all of our collective bosses. And so this is something that's going to be helpful for everybody. And it's just a quick adjustment. And to do that without disrupting previous reporting. But, you know, it's better than just creating more KPIs, which I think is more disruptive, quite frankly. So retiring ones we don't need, creating a consolidated list of fully aligned KPIs on their definition from a layman's term, their calculation, their individual owners. So if there's a KPI and it's being managed by the, say, North American team, and there's a team in uh, EU that maybe has it from a different data lake or a different center, or slightly different data to try to approximate that calculation as best as they can. So we can have a breakout that are as close to one-to-one as possible and have a leader in the EU team and leader in the North American team can speak to that and have that for each KPI. So this dictionary would consist of the name of the KPI, the team or teams that particularly manage it from an actual calculation perspective, the location of where it can be found from a cloud or data lake standpoint, the layman's definition, a technical definition, the um, actual SQL code or similar code that's being used to calculate it that folks can copy and paste, and the owner. And so that just first and foremost is a one-stop shop. And this is something that takes a little while to build. It can take maybe three or four months. But if it's being maintained, it lives in the organization forever. And it's very, very good for performance reporting, and particularly as a good reference when folks are using self-service dashboards to understand metrics a little bit more fluidly and with ease and with less translational error. And then secondly, I'll touch very briefly on this, but the um, the end-to-end process is really just also connecting those individual KPI owners. And whenever there's an issue happening where maybe there's a data blackout or there's a change happening to a KPI because maybe some reporting you know rule has been shifted or the data that's being collected has changed, that there are just recurring meetings from a small subset of those groups. So in the past, I've led those meetings where members of my team have led those meetings with just the managers or the analysts, you know, five or six or seven people who actually pull those metrics will just have recurring meetings and they'll just mention if something's changing. And all we have to do is basically update the dictionary and then we connect with whoever's being affected by this. So if there's going to be a data blackout for a day for let's say marketing, and they're not going to have access to their complete marketing data to let them know ahead of time. And then while the engineering team is working on updating that, our team can partner with them on how to mitigate that while we're waiting to stand up the new solution. So there's no loss of um, efficiency and no money lost, no time lost from you know the back end update all the way through to the front end team that's actually working with that information. So it's basically just having a responsible hand in the management of that information from end to end, top to bottom, and horizontally. Patrick, you mentioned this curated data layer and dashboards and so on that live on that layer. Where would the role of the individual data scientists be? Would there be a data scientist team on the curated layer, just working on that, with the data scientists in the verticals? Or would there be expert data scientists in the verticals that provide inputs into the curated data layer so that they're consumable by this layer directly? 
Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And I think it depends on the size of the organization. So I think if it's a large organization, because data scientists specifically, I, I believe that data scientists and engineers are best working closest to the context of the individual data that they're particularly responsible for. So I will trust the data scientists and the engineers on those individual verticals to give me the best insights, to construct the best models, and you know have access to, I think, more granular and deeper metrics that maybe we're not collecting at an executive level that they can be trusted with. So when it comes to a large organization, I believe in the data engineers for each vertical, maintaining that vertical's entire cloud base, which might include 20 KPIs that are reported upward, but maybe an additional 500 that are reported just within that team that external teams don't need to worry about. And then similar with the data scientists on those teams, I think developing, I think it's dubious and tenuous ground to, in my mind, with a large organization, have a data scientist or an engineer full time at kind of that executive or near executive level for the curated layer, strictly because context is lost. And when context is lost from a reporting standpoint, it's easy to just get that understanding and chat folks, you know, to get qualitative context. But when it comes to inheriting code and looking at, you know, multiple, multiple years of analyses that might feed into a model, it gets very nuanced. And I think it would be duplicative and not beneficial to the org to have those particularly technical roles at the high level. Uh, There might be some technical adjacent roles where you have someone who has the ability to pull the data or someone who can vet the data science models, but I think the actual construction of those and the building of those at a large org should remain in the verticals because they're closest to the context of what they're engineering. But with a small organization, if there's not too much data and the org is, you know, quite, let's say small, maybe the team is, you know, maybe under 500 people, the entire org, maybe under a thousand, even if you're, you know, if, if you have the infrastructure for it then I think it makes sense to have your engineers, data scientists, and this reporting team all in one place. Because at that point, the scale of the organization isn't so unwieldy that each team is almost its own business. And instead, they're just large parts of an even greater whole. And I think it's easier when you think of scaling to actually have, I think, those teams um, at a higher level, just to be able to manage information without it being lost as the company continues to grow, managing models that kind of have their foot in each area. And, you know, as a company grows, if you need to hire specialists on those teams, you can. But I think for just thinking of a skeleton crew or a company where things are moving very quickly, it's good to, it's good on a smaller team to have all those folks in the same place, I feel. Is there a size of organization, Patrick, where the decentralized model doesn't really work? I'll be careful with naming specific size because I know that, you know, the size of, um, let's say, a software company might be very different than the size of a retailer. And so they may have very different sort of structures in the way that those teams are built. But I think generally, to answer your question about there being a threshold, I think that every company of every size is best having that translational performance layer for the C-suite. I think that the decentralized model it works. It works. You know, businesses run on it, but I don't think it's particularly efficient from what I've seen. I think it's more expensive. I think that it can exist in the way that it does and it should with large organizations. And when I say large, let's say as an arbitrary number, maybe a company of 500 million or more. But if it is going to exist in that large org at this point where you need individual contextualized teams working in each vertical, 
you still need that horizontal team. So I think to summarize it, with a small organization, you just want that large horizontal team to manage everything and help build up that scale. And eventually, because you're starting early, you're focusing on good data from the beginning, that's your mindset instead of the model. You're focusing on getting good data and keeping it clean and building an infrastructure and an ETL process that's automated, that's clean, putting in a good cloud database and storage format. All of that is so important. And it's almost like saying that we need a car and you're focusing on the engine, but you forget to put wheels on it. And the engine's great, but the car won't drive. So you really, really need that. It's like nurturing a young brain, right? You want to feed it good things so that it can grow and develop, even if it doesn't know what it's going to become. But when you get to the higher level, and I think someone's getting, let's say, to give a biological example, someone's getting older, and maybe their brain is starting to reach a point where it's less elastic, neuroplasticity is lower, more is happening with the body, bones of you know, bones are more rigid. There's probably going to be more health complications later on just because of the age of the body and what it's been put through in a competitive space, just growing and living, that you still want to collect that information from each location. And it's actually important to get more information from each specified location more often. So to have those decentralized teams talking about it and really taking a deep dive with a magnifying glass on each part of the body. But it's rendered much less efficient if there's not a part of the brain that's listening. And I think, you know, the hand can ache, the back can hurt, the heart can skip a beat, but if you ignore it, then there's really no point in getting that information. And so it needs to be centralized with some sort of a translation layer or a group of, or a group of folks who have a combination of data engineering background and strategic thinking to pull that information together, identify what's important, and then in order of priority, triage what needs to be addressed and address it and share it upward with leadership to make sure that they're continuing to stay effective despite that initial decentralization. I think the devil's advocate position might be, if I may, for a moment, um, <laughs> that uh, at a certain size, one of the objections will inevitably be that it slows us down, it becomes bureaucratic. In very large organizations, say uh, 10,000, 50,000, uh, and so forth, how do you implement the model, the biological model, but still retain some air of agility with the data strategy? The best approach that I've had in recent experience, and it's, it always comes out the same result, but to give an example, what ends up happening is that these companies, you know, when they have these concerns, they are sound. But it, I would actually argue that it doesn't slow down. It actually speeds up. I think the question is, will it slow us down because there's an initial cultural shift that may have to happen or an initial lift? Yes, of course. But if you bring in a consultant for any reason, you're going to get the same effect and it's going to be an external partner. So if you're bringing in a team and building it internally, you're going to actually have something that's living in the long run for this. You're going to have a group of folks who are intimately involved with the company. And it's going to be a short-term cultural shift, just the same as anything else that you might be working on. And when I say bring a consultant, I don't mean for this type of work. I mean for anything. You know, it's, there's always going to be some cultural shift when trying to bring in an external opinion. And so when you're trying to incorporate that opinion, whether it be through a consulting engagement or in person on the ground, there's going to be that shift one way or the other. But it's going to be saving you a lot of time. And the way I see this type of work is I think a lot of leadership looks at things from a profitability perspective, right? They think, what is this going to get us as a net new, a net value add, right? But I think a lot of the time, and this is coming from my background in economics, 
that's called a financial profit. But there's also something called an economic profit, which means the avoidance of a loss instead of the acquisition of a gain, which comes out to the exact same value. If I paid you 10,000 quid or I saved you 10,000 quid, it's the same result. And so a lot of what this model does is that it says, hey, like I mentioned before, let's say you have five people each month tracking down a report. Each of those FTEs have an average salary of about 10,000. Maybe they take about 10 hours a week to work on this. Well, then that's essentially 40,000 a week times four weeks. And all of a sudden, you know, every quarter, you're spending 160,000 per vertical just to get this report out. And so over years and years, that adds up to quite a bit. That adds up to tens of millions. And so investing in a team that ultimately team and software costs less than a million dollars, maybe even less than 600,000 or 500,000, you're able to save tens of millions in the long run and get a lift in your performance. And so that cultural shift is going to happen anyway, whether it be forced in a few years or not, similar to when a lot of companies refuse to digitize their files in the early 2000s and then realized five years too late they needed to anyway, and now they had more files and were rushing to get it done. There's a need for a lot of companies now to modernize their data infrastructure and culturally integrate it across the org so that it's accessible to everybody and it's democratized. And so there's always going to be a little bit of that pain point, but I think the devil's advocate point that you brought up is very valid only in the short term. But in the long term, I think whether they know it or not, leaders will be confronted with the reality that this will need to be done. So they might as well get ahead of it and do it on their own terms at a good price point. And what are the specific challenges or obstacles that large enterprises might face when they're transitioning to the biological model-based data strategy? I would say the big two are absolutely uh, cultural. Uh, so what we talked about already with just developing those partnerships over time, which do come and always come, and they always come with ease, but they come with patience. And so sometimes it can take three, four, or even six months to get everyone fully on board. And that's okay if you're investing for a long-term infrastructure. But if it's a smaller group, it can take a month or less than a month, depending on the size of your organization to get people on board and what their needs are. The goal is to frame how the data is serving them and the benefits that they have from this partnership. So it's less of a give and take and more of a, we're working together on strategy and we're going to help bring the work that you're doing to light across the entire organization and help everybody be more effective in how they think. Um, the second is definitely technological. And so that is primarily from a data collection standpoint. For reporting, it's as simple as a self-service dashboard with Tableau, Power BI, Data Studio, whatever you're working with. And from an AI activation standpoint, a lot of that is done by localized teams. So that work you know, doesn't really need to be worried about. Um, much like I mentioned, the biological model, your eyes blink without you realizing it. Your hand might twitch without you realizing it. If you burn your hand on a stove, it'll pull back. That's the AI automated component. It's just going to be functioning best at the local level. But for the folks who are, I think, trying to curate a lot of this data and pull it into one place, that can take time. But that's the whole reason that this need is there, right? Similar to bringing a VP of growth and saying, you know, we're going to have to take some time to develop relationships with new clients to build up our revenue stream. It's still going to take time. You're still not going to see an immediate payoff. But over time, it's going to snowball. So it's similar to this, where instead of a head of growth, you're bringing in basically a head of data transparency, a head of efficacy, a head of 
performance measurement and reporting or business analytics, whatever you want to call it, at the end of the day, it's marrying the data from the back end and the conversations and needs of each team and melding them into a consistent narrative for leadership to save everybody a lot of time in understanding what's going on and who needs to do what. So it, it comes out pretty well, but that technical build can take a little bit of time. So Patrick, we talked a lot about how data flows through an organization, how it's curated, how it's turned into insights and actions in an organization. Uh, data governance obviously plays a very important role in that process. How is the data governance set up in the biological model that you're talking about? And how is it different from uh, traditional data governance systems? Primarily, it's different in two ways. One, um, and I know we touched on this already, but it's not disjointed. So the data is all being collected and pushed into one central location for a single source of truth. But secondly, to, to, to deliver that single source of truth, there's alignment. And so usually in most organizations, the way a KPI is calculated is usually quite subjective, right? A lot of the time, um, let's say senior leadership says, you know, we want to understand what our return on CapEx over the past six months has been, and I want each team to tell me. Well, each team may have different rules for what the capital expenditure is. I mean, I, you know, I don't know any, any folks from accounting are going group to group and making sure that they qualify it as such. You know, each team will kind of be a little subjective here and there. And the way that you know, they measure their returns to measure to weigh against that CapEx may be different. Maybe some folks are only looking at sales. Maybe other folks are looking at... Um, You know, maybe they're saying net sales and reducing any sort of churn that came about over that period. Who knows? And so, you know, it's there's no standard in place. And that's where inconsistency and inaccuracy reporting happens. And that's actually one of the reasons why a lot of companies in 2021 overscaled and why now they're kind of seeing, particularly in the tech sector, a need to um, sort of reduce their force, their workforces a little bit is because a lot of reporting that was happening and forecasts that were being made were decentralized. And so people, there were no checks on people's work. There was no kind of logical reassessment for someone to say, wait, hold on, let's think about this. I talked to this team and that team and that team at an executive level, and it's not adding up. Let's, let's pull back a little bit and think about how we're scaling and what we're spending our money on. And it's these types of conversations that I think are lacking in a lot of organizations. And what the biological model assists with is it does centralize that information. But secondly, through that governance model within um, the biological model, the way we govern the collection of information within it is also to get alignment. So is pain the same as pain? Is you know heat the same as heat on each part of the body? Or are we mistaking maybe you know a slap on the hand for something good and you know a burn on the hand for something bad? And suddenly we have two things that are bad, but one of them is being registered as good. And so we really need to get alignment on that. So the government's infrastructure is basically making sure that everyone is speaking the same performance story and making the same assumptions when they report and not leaving it 100% to, you know, just subjectivity. Basically, the process would be them coming to the reporting team and just explaining their logic for the KPI. And then the team, the reporting team, usually just wrapping that into the narrative. And very rarely will they tweak it. But if they absolutely need to, they'll just say, you know, there's been conversations to try to do this. Can we reach a middle ground that might make everyone happy in how we report this? But it's basically those two things. And then the rest of that, when you combine it with that curated layer model, where we're not disrupting data engineering, 
Um, we're not disrupting data science teams. Uh, so that way the automation and the sourcing of the information remains localized to each limb and each part of the body and just gets funneled up from just purely reporting so the brain can make decisions. And then lastly is that data dictionary um, and that end-to-end -end process where we say, okay, you know, we have all of our knowledge for all of the most important metrics in one place, and we have a very consistent process for fixing things and getting ahead of things if, say, there are any technological you know, or data-related uh, adjustments that need to be made to make sure that the teams that receive the data and the teams that produce and curate the data are all working properly without any sort of surprises on either end, which can happen in large organizations, particularly when these teams are decentralized. So all of that together creates a very strong infrastructure because you have transparency, you have trust, you have centralization. And most importantly, um, it becomes much easier once those small shifts occur. Most of this work is already happening. It's just talking about it differently and maybe creating a few very simple tools to house it all in one place. And then from there, it's all just conversation. So there would obviously be changes in data policy for an organization, a little bit also changes in the way data flows, uh, having this kind of basin of insight and truth at the end. How about roles and responsibilities? Would the biological model require changes to those or would there even be roles and responsibilities that are new uh, in that model? Yeah, again, the whole and the beautiful thing about the model is there's there are small changes, but nothing dramatic. It's The only large change is the way the organization thinks about its performance and cleaning up that thinking. So the small changes would be, first of all, to my point, the creation of a role or function at adjacent to C-suite, probably equivalent to just in traditional business terms, equivalent to a VP or sort of, you know, division vertical type of position with a couple of direct reports who are able to work horizontally, the only horizontal team in an org built on verticals, and just making sure that those conversations are happening and that these standards are being, to provide those standards and guide. In terms of existing roles within the organization, the roles of VPs, let's say VPs are the folks running these verticals for sake of argumentation. So the roles of VPs and then the folks who on those VPs teams, usually analysts or managers who are responsible for reporting the KPIs, they will have slight shifts in their roles, but very minor. When I say very minor, I mean two or three hours a week um, will be changed out to do something different, not added to. Typically with the VPs, it's just going to be inviting that horizontal team to come in and sit on maybe their WBRs or any sort of group, you know, team calls that they have just to get visibility and be a fly on a wall and understand the context of the work and how things are pacing. And also to be sitting in on those business reviews to report up with the C-suite. So to make it a personalized discussion with each person in that discussion, rather than one-on-one, 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 VP CEO, VP CEO, VP COO, just making it everyone in the room, they can still have their one-offs, but you have these recurring calls with the entire health of the org and the folks responsible for each of those verticals are on those calls and the information is clear, presented, no doubt in its accuracy. And then, like I mentioned, that other role where the analysts on their team would be speaking to those, that's really the only other change is the analysts would be on some of those calls, probably more of the lower level ones, and they would just basically have a responsibility for contextualizing anything happening with a KPI. And obviously, that's their responsibility anyway. So maybe you have a manager of customer success, and maybe they have a suite of three or four KPIs that they're responsible for, and maybe two of them are reported upward to C-suite. So they'll just have a responsibility for either providing an explanation to their VP who can share it 
or sitting on those calls, maybe not with C-suite, but with, you know, the VP level of all the vertical heads and giving context. And most importantly, the only real thing that's going to change in that role, because they're already giving that context, is that they're not just giving it to their manager's manager anymore. They're giving it laterally to the heads of other groups that will also be relying on that information if it's pertinent. So it's not really an extra lift in time. It's just pivoting the way we think about sharing that information and sharing it in a broader, more contextualized forum. So Patrick, as we conclude today's show, do you have any final pieces of advice about the biological model and how organizations can implement or where they can find out more about the model? In terms of where to implement, just listen to what you can't hear. When you're thinking about how well your company is doing, I want you to ask yourself, what don't I know and what do I really want to know? And what do I know, but I don't trust? Because that's what this model is set to do. It's set to call into question what's actually being told at a high level after it's passed through essentially the game of telephone and passed through six or seven hands before it gets to your desk. And secondly, it calls into question what you're not able to get, but you may actually be able to get and you don't know it. So really implementing the model is a low cost, um, high value solution. And it takes all of a couple of months to implement with the right type of vision in place. Uh, it's a very exciting role. And uh, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing more and more companies adopted over time. Uh, in terms of where to learn more about it, um, it's a model that I've actually developed myself. So you can always um, reach out to myself on LinkedIn. You can read some of the articles that I'm producing out in the space. And also, um, you can find me through Northeastern University and Boston University, where I uh, teach as well. So always happy to talk more about that. Great. And we'll put a link in the show notes for you, the listener, to access uh, some of those articles. Okay, so we're nearly at the conclusion of today's episode. But before we leave you, we did want to make a quite important special announcement and talk about a new quarterly magazine that we have published that's now on issue two. Both Patrick and Philip are uh, contributors and have produced excellent pieces uh, for the magazine. The magazine is called The Data Scientist, and it features many of the world's leading data scientists and organizations implementing data science and AI. The articles are wide-ranging, spanning machine learning, data engineering, and platforms. We have industry case studies uh, from some of the world's largest companies. There are articles on data leadership and management of teams, and for the data scientists themselves, uh, careers advice. So it's packed full of insight and not adverts, apart from there are two or three adverts, one for this show, of course, we had to do that. And also for the main show sponsor, Data Science Talent, obviously my recruitment company, they who are also the sponsor for this show. But other than that, it is packed full of deep content rich articles. And Patrick's article is due in issue three out in May 23. Uh, Philip's article is available now in issue two. And Philip's article has an incredible amount of value in it because it tackles one of the biggest issues data science leaders face in being successful, which is how to get their data science MVPs into production and scaled effectively in large enterprises. And as well as being an article, it contains a superb process map, um, which is effectively your complete cheat sheet uh, for the industrialization of data science and big companies. 
So if you subscribe to the magazine, which is free, then we'll even send you a free PDF of that process map. So you can subscribe for the magazine and all future issues at datasciencetalent.co.uk forward slash media. We will, of course, put that in the show notes. Patrick, this has been an absolute pleasure. Lots of insight into the biological model and the potential positive impact it can have on large companies. So thank you so much for talking to us. I'm sure we'll be having you back to talk uh, in more depth about data governance. We wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. And thank you also to my co-host, Philip Diesinger, and of course, to you for listening. Do check out our other episodes at datascienceconversations.com and we look forward to having you back on the next show.